Welcome. You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm Meryl Arnett, mama, meditator, and head of mindfulness for Shoreline Meditation App. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a 20-minute guided meditation. If these meditations support you and your practice, please consider donating to the show to support its continued growth, new offerings, and its ever-expanding team. You can find the link in today's show notes or simply visit merylarnett.com and click on podcast. All right, y'all, let's practice. Welcome, my friends, to another episode of the Mindful Minute. Thank you so much for tuning in, as always. So as we get started, first, I just want to shout out that unbelievably, we are a month away for my next meditation teacher training. It begins in January of 2022. There are just a few spots left. And I just had the most fun conversation with one of my Monday night meditation students. And she was sort of feeling me out about the training, asking a couple questions. And really the question that was most prominent was, am I ready? Am I ready? And I am here to tell you that you are ready. If you are meditating regularly, you have a consistent practice for at least six months, you are invited, welcome, and ready to be part of this training. This is not a performative training. Nobody is going to put you on the spot and quiz you, make sure that you know all the things. This is an exploratory training. This is a training that invites you to dive deep into your own practice, into your own questions, answers, and locked doors that are yet to be opened. This training is for you. There's a few more spots and less than a month to sign up before we begin. So take a minute to check it out. The link is in the show notes. Now, Today, I am sharing the very last interview that I will share in 2021, one of my favorites. I am here today chatting with Day Shilkrit. Day is an artist, somebody, as he explains, that lives in pursuit of impermanent beauty. He is the creator of Morning Altars, which some of you might have seen on Instagram or in many, many press outlets. He's gotten lots of coverage over the years. He has a book called Morning Altars, a seven-step practice to nourish your spirit through nature, art, and ritual. Now, y'all know nature, art, ritual are right up my alley. I hope they're up yours as well. This conversation is uh, really a conversation about ritual, the importance of ritual, what it means, what it looks like, why we should pay attention to it. Day has a new book coming out in January that is about this very topic, 75 Rituals for Times of Loss, Celebration, and Change. You can see a link to his book in the show notes. And I just want to read you this quick process before we dive into the interview. So on his website, Day writes about his process of creating a morning altar. Morning time. Take basket and go on walk. Stay alert. Watchful. Forage. Hike to hill or creek bed. Clear space. Be quiet and listen. Build altar, feathers, leaves, berries, bones. Pray, offer it, watch it altar. I love this description. I love the conversation I'm I'm about to share with you around ritual. And it's so timely as we creep up on two 
really, really big common markers in the year that we can use to explore ritual if you don't already. We've got the winter solstice coming up at the end of December, and then we've got the new year. And you might already have little rituals that you do and you've never called them ritual. You might have new rituals that you want to explore or introduce into your life. I hope this conversation sparks some of that curiosity. Let's get into it now. Dashiell Kret, welcome to the Mindful Minute. Thank you for talking with us today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I have been so looking forward to this conversation. I have spent a lot of time, particularly in this last year, it feels like, talking about ways that our meditation practice connects us with nature and ways that nature connects us with ourselves. And so I'm really excited to step into a conversation with you today. And I thought we'd start, maybe you could just tell listeners who you are and and what you do in the world. Sure. (laughs) Those are, I'd say, simple and complex questions. Mm -hmm. And what I do in the world is kind of a very unique, unexpected thing. It's not something my parents would have ever dreamed of for me as a child, but maybe someone long ago dreamed of it for me. I don't know. It's a career where I basically have been for about 10 years now making impermanent art out of nature that has turned into a seven-step practice that I wrote a book about and that I teach all over the world. And the more I teach this practice, which is really the three pillars of it are nature, art, and ritual. And the more I teach it, the more profound it gets, which is always a good sign (laughs) that you're still interested in your teaching 10 years later and that it's still teaching you. And so I'm doing that. And, and I just finished a, well, It's being published in January, but I just finished my second book. And this is much more focused on ritual, less nature, less art, but they are in that book as well. And this new book that is called Hello Goodbye identifies 36 life transitions, ranging from birth to death, to the loss of a pet, to a divorce, miscarriage. I interviewed over 200 people for this book. And the book basically says, this is a moment that is worth not passing by so quickly. So why don't we slow down and turn towards this transition, this hello, goodbye moment, and make meaning with it. And so there's 75 rituals in the book. I like to think of this book as a ritual cookbook in a way. And so I'd say, you know, who am I and what I'm doing in the world? I'm really, I'm really interested in helping people make more meaning with their lives in this culture, um, which is really just addicted to like the next thing and moving on quickly and, you know, and all of us being overwhelmed and overloaded. And so my, I put my stake in the ground very firmly in the camp of let's slow down together. Let's make meaning together and let's look and be awed by this amazing world that we live in and make some beauty while we're here. You know, my one of my meditation teachers often says the most important practice is to stay awake in the transition. And and so often that's the moment when we choose to leave because it's a, it's a hard moment and often a very uncomfortable moment. I'm really interested how do you think about ritual or or maybe define ritual? Well, in the book <laughs> In these interviews, I I asked one question consistently with everyone, no matter what they were going through, and the and the question was simply, how do you define ritual? Mm. Because it's it is something that is so we all understand what we mean when we say it, but we all have a different operating definition of what it means. And so, in the book, I named about seven different peoples just because I couldn't name 250. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'd say where I've come to in my own operational definition, especially after contending with this subject for two years now, um, intimately, is ritual is a midwife. It's a midwife for change. And so when change happens, and it could be as benign as your kid losing their tooth, 
And it could be as significant as your house burns down or your partner leaves you or your parent dies um, or you have a baby. I mean, that's a life-changing experience for sure. And But what that often comes to is that life becomes ungrounded. We ask a lot of questions and they often sound like, who am I? Where am I? What is this? What now? These are questions that often come in the face of these life transitions. And ritual creates what I call in the book an island in time. So it sets up boundaries that say, okay, like let's ask these questions. Let's turn towards them. Let's create a sacred space to ask these questions and to do some what I in the book I call symbolic action. So that could be breaking something or burying something or burning something or tying something or eating something that speak to the heart of that transition and what's needed. And so ritual really is a way to create solid ground when the ground feels like it's dissolving. It puts you on a little bit of an island so you can stand in the midst of change and start to really approach questions that when your life is changing so quickly, it's really hard to, it's hard to find that sense of solidity. An example would be, you know, my, a dear, dear friend of mine was diagnosed this year with breast cancer. And I was one of her first phone calls after she got the diagnosis. And, and also the support of her doctors were all about the strategy. What do we do? How do we fix this? Like what treatments, what second opinions, what research? And so she was on to the, the next thing because it felt urgent and the ground was changing underneath her. And I said, you know, I love you and I support you doing all of this. But my strength in the world is to help you slow down right now as your life is changing, because the person that you were when you entered the doctor's office is not the person you are right now. You've changed in a second. You've changed. You're no longer that healthy person. Now you're a diagnosed person. And so I organized an online ritual for her and her 10 close friends so that she could approach these questions of who am I now and what do I do now and, and approach them with a full heart, a broken heart and beauty and, and witness. And so it gave her some ground to stand on as her life changed. And so I'd say that's really, you know, what ritual is. And I really think what we need more than anything right now as, as our world changes is we need more meaning. You mentioned sacred action as a piece of ritual. Are there other pieces that feel really consistently present within a ritual? Sure. I'd say I named one just now. Witnessing is an important one. Doing something and be and having others that you trust and care about witness. Or as a teacher, I'm not sure if you if you know the teacher Bio Komalafe, but mm-hmm. he he's a wonderful African wisdom keeper teacher author and he 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 so creatively plays with the word witness and uses the word withness mm. w-i-t-h-ness and he says you know the act of witnessing is the capacity to stay with what's happening i love that and that is what ritual allows us to do and that is what witnessing that's the function of a witness is it helps you when you want to turn away because it's too much or too painful or too scary or too whatever. The witnessing says, I'm with you. Let's turn towards this together. And, you know, it's, and especially if it's, if it's troubling to just stay with it, to stay with it together. So that's one thing witnessing, I'd say, um, you know, there's other pieces about time, space, creating a sacred time container, creating a sacred space container are important pieces. Also in the book, I talk a lot about thresholds. Those are, that seems to be a very consistent piece 
in ritual is these moment, these threshold moments. You know, one of the reasons I named the book Hello Goodbye is because I'm, you know, we have these moments where something leaves or something arrives. And yet we need to stand at the threshold longer. It's a skill to stand when things are changing. Can you stand at the edge of that moment before it changes? And the more that we can practice that, the stronger and more resilient we get in the face of change, which I know you do a lot of meditation. And really that is the, that is the purpose of meditation is to become resilient and in relationship with change. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, as I think about your work, I think as meditation practitioners, we spend a lot of time learning and experiencing that pause where you are I don't know if suspended is the right word, but you are resting on the edge of the present moment as it's becoming the next present moment. And what I think is so interesting is I'm listening to you talk about your work is that it feels like this is the offering of, as you learn to pause right here, there's a thing to do, a way to honor or experience that pause. And that sounds like what you're offering. Yes. I think that's a great point. Too many people these days are there's a lot of teachers pointing towards this moment that's not that that's not that's very common you know to point to transitional moments that's i'm not i'm not i'm in you know plenty of company by doing that i think the uniqueness of ritual and the offering is that it says you can do something here Actually, you must do something here with your hands or your feet or your mouth or your belly. There's something to do. And I think that feels very encouraging, purposeful, and human to make something with your hands or to do, to break something with your hands or to, to twine something with your hands or bury something it's very human. It's not about talking about the thing. It's about doing something. And I think that comes as a great relief to a lot of people. I know it does to me to feel like, oh, in this moment, I can actually do something that feels very empowering. I wonder if we could maybe walk back a little bit towards, as you were beginning the work of creating this impermanent art, in and with nature, was it immediately a ritualistic experience for you? Like what was the beginning of this and how has it evolved? Sure. So just for your audience's sake, you're referencing something that this practice that's called morning altars, which is, it's its own thing. So, you know, making altars out of nature is by its very purpose, a ritual. Although this new book, that's, you know, they're one of the 75 rituals are a, a nature altar. Um, so I'm really kind of ste stepping on the shoulders of this work that I've been working on for so long. Mm -hmm. But the origin of morning altars came, I mean, I, I, I'd always been very drawn to nature and very drawn to being creative my entire life. But the, how this came into the world was through grief and it was about 10 years ago, I had my father die and a divorce in the same year. And I was just wrecked. And so at the time I had a dog and we would go on these long walks in the hill. And one morning we came across these beautiful mushrooms growing under this eucalyptus tree. And I sat down and I started to arrange them on the earth, just not really even thinking about it in some ways, just because my mind felt so chaotic that I needed to, with my hands, make order. I mean, this is why a lot of people, I think, like clean their house or wash dishes when they're feeling stressed. Hmm. You know, you're trying to externally organize something that is internally feeling chaotic. And in the morning altars work, and especially in this teacher training that I'm doing, I'm teaching my teachers a lot about external landscape, paying attention to the external landscape 
so that it can help you pay attention to your internal landscape. There's a lot of external internal happening. The more we can tend to our relationship with the land, the more we can tend to ourselves. So with morning altars, I started to just arrange the mushrooms and bark and berries and flowers into a pattern that allowed my mind to feel like there was some order in front of me, not just order, but beauty. And so the practice evolved into like me wanting to do it every day because it felt so good and, and it felt so easy. And I was making something beautiful and I was making something impermanent, which like, it wasn't about the, you know, the consumer cultures, like trying to sell something or, or anything like that. It was just a prayer for me every day. And then I started to share it in the world. And the remarkable thing that happened was that people in different countries around the world were inspired by this practice and making their own in out of their own land for their own reasons and sending them to me. And so, you know, over the years, I've gotten thousands of other people's altars made because, you know, it's the 10th year anniversary of their mother's death, or they just had a baby, or they became a grandparent, or, you know, they lost a pregnancy or whatever. And so people have been making nature altars, morning altars for these reasons. And so that's the origin of that. And the the real three pillars, as I've said, of this practice is nature, nature connection, nature awareness, belonging to place. That's number one. Number two is creativity, art, inspiration, imagination. And then the third pillar is ritual, meaning-making, sane-making, understanding. And separately, all of these three pillars are enough. <laughs> you know, just doing each, just being in nature is enough. But when you put these three together, something very unique and magical happens. And so that's been my jam for 10 years now is bringing this into the world and and helping a, a very disconnected and very traumatized culture find healing and sanity through this simple and overlooked and available. I mean, you really don't need any money to go outside and make art out of leaves. You know, you don't, you don't need to buy it in a store. You don't need to be a certain age. You don't have to have a certain education. You don't have to have come from a certain family. It's just it's all right there. I mean, it's very human. It's incredibly human. And I, you know, it's interesting to think about how valuable it is to engage in a practice that, as you said, creates a beautiful version of order, but also equally in the same moment is so clearly going to change. You're not framing it and hanging it on the wall. It's not going to stay. It's going to change. The wind is going to blow. It's going to rain, right? So you're working with both order and change in the same breath, even. And sometimes, and and you know, it doesn't always go the way you want it to. I've had I've had a hundred and one altars change at the worst possible moment. You know, I I told the story the other day to my teachers about this time where I was the artist in residence at the Andy Warhol. Uh, a state in New York. And they basically said, you have two weeks to, to stay in this mansion and enjoy the beach, private beach. And the only thing we ask of you is when the press comes on the last day of your internship or your artist in residency, our board is going to come. The press is going to come. Just show us something you made. And I spent I don't know, 10 hours making something exquisite out of lobster claws and crab shells and seaweed. And, and then, you know, half an hour before they showed up, the beach totally took it away. <sighs> and I had nothing, not, not even any material, you know? And, and in that moment, I really got to encounter the way I wanted things to be looking very different than the way that they were. And that's life sometimes. Mm -hmm. And what do you do with that? You know, that's the question is like, how do you, and at first I cursed, you know, I threw a temper tantrum, but you know, the good thing is that it gave me this amazing story and these teachings. Um, and what did I expect making 
impermanent art at the edge of an ocean. Like I'm in a, you know, much bigger world than just me. So, you know, it's very easy for the, the beauty of this practice to me is that it puts me in direct relationship with change and ritual also does that. It creates a sacred container to turn towards change and to do something with it. And that's where, that's what I'm drawn to is what, do, how do we teach people to be in relationship with change and what do we do when it changes? When I teach about meditation, one of the things I often say is that for me, it is a practice of learning how to be comfortable with discomfort. And I wonder if that resonates with the work that you do in ritual. Not always. Yeah. Not always. It's, you know, sometimes I, I spoke to a woman. Uh, I interviewed a woman in the book. She's her stories in the book. So it's, I think it's kosher to talk about. She was married, happy life, about to, you know, wanting to have a baby. Her husband went on a bike ride one day, hit a rock, flipped over, became a paraplegic, totally disabled from the, the neck down, no, no movement, nothing. Their life changed immediately, right? And not, nothing comfortable about that. Their sex life, their their emotional reality, their time reality. They had they, they, because they had so many aids coming in and out to help them. No private time. Financial reality totally changed. She told me that um, she brought maybe two or three friends. The, a year later on the anniversary, to that rock that he fell off of, and she did a ritual there. And she screamed and threw things at the rock and expressed her anger. And then she did a, the ritual ended with a water pouring on the rock, asking for forgiveness and, and letting herself grieve. Was that comfortable? Probably not. But did it allow her to face her life as it was? Yes. So I think, you know, it really depends on what we're talking about and the person's experience and what changed, you know, and sometimes comfort's not the goal. Sometimes grief is, or anger is, or understanding is, and sometimes comfort is, but I think ritual has, has a lot of room for a lot of different experiences and, um, and her, for hers, she needed to scream at that rock. She needed to grieve and cry with that rock. And, you know, and it helped her. And I think she goes back every year. And so the way I would, I guess, maybe make an assumption, which is probably a very dangerous thing to do, but I view experiences like that while obviously not a comfortable experience in the moment, perhaps what's happening is that we're in the acknowledging of the emotion, right? We're creating a resilience or a tolerance to be able to keep moving forward rather than be stuck in is yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think that is the walk in life is to keep getting back up and keep remembering mm. You know, a lot of this book, this new book that I, a lot of it centers on memory and remembering and forgetting. This is a very, very big theme of ritual. It's a very big theme of how I wrote. I even started the book off with the story of my mom who is in mid-stage dementia right now. And the, the introduction to the book starts off with the very first time she forgot my name. And I asked the question, you know, what do you do? That, what do I do when that happened? Like, do I just carry on with my day as if nothing happened? You know, what do I do? And then the second part of the introduction goes into the question, if it's possible for a person to lose their memory, is it possible for a culture to lose its memory? And where, where the 
introduction ends and the big culmination is that ritual. This is a, actually a quote from Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote the book Braiding Sweetgrass. She says, One of my favorites. She says, and this is really the crux of my book too. She says, Our elders taught us that ceremony is a way we can remember to remember. And that is what I'm on about is when we do ritual, when we slow down and make meaning with the things that we do not understand or that are beyond us or hard for us to grasp or amazing and celebratory or whatever, but the things that are changing, we need to remember to remember. And ritual is the way to do that, is the way to recollect or recollect this is a double a double play word is to recollect our forgettings and to bring them back together into something whole and that's really what the word remember means the word remember has the word re in it which means to do again and the word member which is a whole like membership it's a it's a whole collection but when you say remember you're immediately acknowledging that you forgot and forgetting is very human. Don't, I mean, our computers don't forget, but humans forget all the time. So ritual, ceremony, nature, meditation, these pieces are how we can remember what's really important. And especially as more and more technology creeps in, and we're on the screen more and more. I don't know about you, but I am. And we're moving faster and faster. I mean, I don't know about you, but things are, are really fast right now. And overscheduled and overbooked and overwhelmed and all of these things, it's easy to forget. It's easy to, to, for things to fall behind, fall through the cracks, all of these things to forget what's important. And ritual is a way that we can take the kind of the tattered parts of our lives that are getting left behind and bring them together again. Yeah. There's more to say. I have a lot to say. I teach courses on this, so I can go on for hours. <laughs> you know, I, I love this thread of thought and I'll share the silliest story, but it feels so relevant as we're talking about remembering. I My partner and I, just randomly started watching, this was maybe, I don't know, five months ago, four months ago, we started watching Mythic Quest on Apple TV. It's like an office sitcom situation. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. But they did a COVID episode where they're all remote and the whole episode is essentially like a Zoom situation. It was very well done. And I'm not going to give it away for people that might want to go watch it, but there's a very touching scene of human connection at the end of this episode. And we were watching the episode probably in June of 2021. So it was in that brief moment where like, maybe there was light at the end of the tunnel. We had been vaccinated. Our families had been vaccinated. We're like, maybe we're going to go out again. And so we're watching this episode sort of thinking it's moving towards being behind us. And I'm watching it. There's the moment of human connection and I am bawling. And in the moment of that sobbing, I thought to myself, oh, I have moved so fast that I have not stopped to actually deal with what I am still feeling in this moment. It was such a moment of remembering because it would like trigger that emotional response, which is silly because it's a TV show, but it was an important moment for me to say like, oh, I've got to stop here and actually pay attention to what's happening. Yeah. Be prepared to stop. I think that for me, there the word that comes to mind when you say that is also the word integration. It's kind of like I was talking to my friend before who's a She's an acupuncturist, Chinese medicine practitioner and doctor. And she was talking to, we were talking about, you know, she has a client who's eating a lot, but her body is not absorbing the food. It's not taking in the nutrients. 
And so no matter, you know, how much organic food she eats or healthy food she eats or whatever, it's just kind of moving through her and the, her practice with her client is how do you get your body to, to integrate and be nourished by the actual, like what it's actually consuming and not let it pass through you. And what you're naming and what I'm naming around memory and slowing down and creating sacred space and all of these things that we're talking about is really another way to say, to allow your being to integrate what's happening, to let it take it in. You can't do that on the run. You can't do that when you're checking email. You can't do that when you're running your kids to school or you know, you can't do that when you're making dinner, doing laundry or all the many things that life has. We need more time to integrate. We have very thin ways of doing that, but some of them work. For me, it's like I listen to a lot of like musical theater. It lets me emote. I used to work on Broadway, so I have a love for it. And mm -hmm. Oh, let's talk about that. <laughs> And it lets me emote, but, and, it, and I'm grateful for it, but it's definitely not enough. And there's more moments that are needed for me to slow down, turn towards and immerse myself in what's happening and really let it be integrated in my system, in my psycho-spiritual system. And it happens even better when it's witnessed. It's kind of like the witnesses let the nutrients break down even more so that you can absorb it in your system. But ritual is really, it's like, it's another way of saying it. I've never talked about it like this before, but it's another way of saying like, it's another, it's like a metabolizer. It's a stomach. The things in our life that are hard to digest or like, as I said, your husband falling off of a bike or whatever, diagnosis, all of these things, pandemic, the things that are hard to digest it lets us digest them personally and collectively. I wonder if you would share a little bit about what your day-to-day -day practice or practices look like versus like a set-aside witnessed moment of ritual, but what does day-to-day -day look like for you? Yeah. I mean, one chapter in this book is rituals for every day. Um, another one is rituals for the year. But I do, I do approach the rituals for every day, especially getting up and going to bed. Those are two really important moments. And so for me, getting up in the morning always starts off. I, I come from a Jewish culture. So for me, for 40 years now, I've been saying the same prayer every morning, basically like as my eyes are barely open, this prayer always comes out first and foremost. Um, and the prayer is basically like, thank you for returning me to this body and to this life and not letting me take it for granted. The prayer is called Modani in Hebrew. And so that's how I start. And then my, and in this book, by the way, which I think maybe to your listeners, this would be very interesting. You know, I, I make a very clear distinction between routine and ritual. They're very different. Um, so I have routines in the morning. Some of them are stretching and, you know, like I listen to a certain podcast and grinding my coffee beans and all of these things. I'd say those are very much routine and I'm very grateful for them. But like the word routine, it has the word route in it. And so it puts me on a certain path so I can get places. Ritual is very different. It has a very different function and purpose. Um, one of my rituals that I do every day is that I light candles. So I have an altar in my home and I light two candles. And those two candles are, this is something I teach in my teacher training. So it's a little, I mean, I could talk about this, what I'm about to say for hours and, and should, it's worth it. But you asked, so one of the candles is for the first times and one of them is for the last times. And what that means is, I find that when I can look at my life as if it was the first time, if I'm drinking coffee and if it was the first time I ever tasted the coffee, it brings out a sense of wonder, like, whoa, this is amazing. And if it was the last time 
I was ever drinking a, a cup of coffee. It also brings out a sense of wonder. And so I light these candles to renew my wonder at my life because life gets familiar and it gets kind of like in the day-to-day -day grind. And it's, it's very hard to stay alive and vibrant. And so I light these candles as a way to remind me that you know, there was once upon a time where it was the first time I ever drank a cup of coffee and at a date, I don't know, there will be a last time. And so lighting those candles every day lets me see my life again renewed. And renewal is a very, very, very important part of ritual. Very. We need to renew our lives every day, every year, every day, every season, every birthday, every death anniversary. Every Mother's Day. I mean, this is what holidays are for. They're to renew our relationships with that thing. New Year's, we have to renew our year every year. So I do that every day. I renew my day every day. And before bed, same thing I in a different way. But I, I don't take it for granted. I love that. And I love that it's so immediately doable. You know, it's interesting as I have two young children and in this stage of my life, the minute a teacher says to me, the minute you open your eyes, you're going to do this thing. I immediately am like, oh, let me tell you about the moment I open my eyes, right? It's, I am jerked from sleep by one or two children, usually jumping on top of me. And so practices that you name, the intentionality behind it. And that momentary pause that I can do with two kids right next to me, right? And it still becomes this sacred connection in the midst of whatever the moment looks like, whether you have loads of time in the morning or you have no time in the morning. That's a really powerful practice to offer. I love that. Very much so. And I, you know, I grew up, you know, very observant as a, a Jewish person um, until I came out of the closet. And growing up, there's um, Friday night, we celebrate Shabbat. And that's our Sabbath for 24 hours. And there's a prayer around the dinner table where the parents put their, ha their hands on the children's head and they offer a, a prayer that basically says, I remember your, like, I remember you. I don't take you for granted. Um, and the kids, like, you know, they're kids, so they're not really paying attention to it. But it's really, it's a moment at least once a week for the parents to bless their children and to marvel at them. And the more we can do that in little ways, doesn't have to always be like, you know, an all day ritual or a three hour ritual. It could literally be a one minute ritual, but the more that we can marvel at the things in our lives again, there's a, an, ethno, an ethnographer, Arnold Van Gennep, who's from the last century. He calls it pivoting to, towards the sacred. Pivoting towards the sacred, meaning we need to turn towards the sacred in these things. You're taking a shower. How do you pivot towards the sacred in that moment? How do you distinguish this being just a regular old shower and this being something meaningful and sacred. And there's lots of ways to do that. And I, you know, I offer a lot of recipes in this book, but the fundamental of it is, and I'm not saying one is better than the other. Sure, we need plenty of like, you know, mundane, regular old showers, but occasionally we need to pivot towards the sacred and sacred and remember this is special. This is a special moment. Waking up in the morning. That's actually quite special. There are some people that didn't. You had the privilege today. And that's, a, you know, if you can pivot towards the sacred in these little transitional moments, well, life becomes a lot more colorful and a lot more, there's a lot more gratitude and there's a lot more presence. There's a lot more humility and, and love. I mean, there's just a lot more life. Day, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you really are? Plenty. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stay all day. Let's keep talking. <laughs> well, these topics, you know, they're, 
you know, they're old. There's, I mean, ritual is, it's, it's very, very old. And we're so emaciated these days when it comes to these types of things. So, you know, just one more point, actually, I'm saying this right now. I wrote about this in the book as well. You know, I think I wrote about in the book, you know, like when people start to lean into ritual, it becomes very easy, almost like you didn't realize how hungry you were and then you're starving. And that's how a lot of cultural appropriation happens. People looking to other people who have intact rituals and almost like not even on purpose, but stealing them or borrowing them. And so I, I basically hard stop that in the book while at the same time posing the question, well, does that mean that you can't do it? Does that mean you can't touch ritual just because you don't remember your own ancestors rituals? And so I think something you didn't mention, but that I would like to mention is ritual is both something remembered and something invented. It's deeply creative, deeply, but it's also very much sometimes tied to place or people or tradition. And so at the same time, I'm really honoring a lot of the places where I come from and maybe asking you to honor those places or learn from those places of where you come from, where, you know, where do your people come from, where are their traditions? While at the same time, knowing that ritual is deeply promiscuous, just like anything inspiring, it likes to inspire and, and awaken our imaginations. And so it's very much like cooking. You can make something that comes from a culture and a people like I had Mexican last night, but I, I made it in my own way and I made the flavors taste how I like them. And so ritual is, has that capacity too. And so I think we have to approach these things with a lot of respect and a lot of imagination. And to me, that's like, what are better human qualities than that? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I, I spend a lot of time actually thinking about appropriation in the circles that I teach in and study in. And one particular path that I personally am drawn to and study in is animal wisdom. And I'm currently studying with a woman who teaches from like a Mesoamerican shamanistic tradition. And the question came up about appropriation for those of us that are not Mesoamerican in family lines. And she talked a lot about the normalcy of appropriation with full acknowledgement and intention versus misappropriation, where we claim something as our own or disregard where the tradition or the ritual or the experience came from. And so as you're talking, I... I really hear those words being, you know, resonated once again is that it's really about the awareness of what we're doing, where it came from, why we're doing it and our intention behind it. For sure. And also including the word appreciation in there too. Mm, like yes. Things are swinging on a pendulum, you know, and I think we can either get overly appropriative, but we could also get overly cautious and too scared. It really does come down. It comes down to a lot of things, but as I said, it, it's two wings of the same bird. It's deeply honoring and intentional and simultaneously inventive and imaginative and creative. They have to work in tandem. You know, if we're just being imaginative when it comes to sacred work, ritual, or whatever, then we're taking without realizing it. And if we're just purely being cautious, we don't allow our imagination the freedom that it needs to receive new ideas and inspiration. So we have to work in tandem with both of those aspects. And, you know, to me, that's a very faithful rendering of ritual and it's a trustworthy one. Hey, I have loved this conversation. I cannot wait to open up the pages of your forthcoming book. Tell us when we can hold it in our hands. January 25th is the publication date. It's being published by Simon Element, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster, which I'm grateful for. January 25th is when it's published. Pre-orders are now. 
I don't know how this happened, but last week we were for two days, we were number one on Amazon for parenting teenagers. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge chapter in the book on rituals for puberty. Um, I taught teenagers for like almost 20 years. So I have a lot to say about it, but I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that, you know, there might be parents who need this and that it's available to them in a, almost like a resource book. Um, so yeah, this book, Hello, Goodbye, the subtitle is 75 Rituals for Times of Loss, Celebration, and Change. And, you know, I'm very, very proud of this work. I, I went up to Canada for three months to write a little bit and uh, the pandemic happened and I stayed for two years and this book was born. So Wow. For listeners, all of the links will be in the show notes so that you can pre-order a copy of your book, um, as well as visit Day's website, see his artwork on Instagram, um, and much, much more. And I also mentioned that teacher training. Yes, which I have high hopes of participating in one day. <laughs> I hope you do. It's, it is, I mean... I don't know how to describe it's truly life-changing. Um, my teachers went in thinking, oh, was we're gonna learn this practice, but what's actually ending up happening is that they're they're changing deeply as people. And we have social work, we have prison social workers, we have death doulas, we have art therapists, we have elementary school teachers. I have people from five continents participating and wanting to, and for, and people doing it for their own personal improvement, but people wanting to bring this practice of nature, art, and ritual back to their communities in need. And that's a dream come true. And I'm so happy to hand over these seeds so that it gets out in the world in a much bigger way because it's truly transformative. So um, if you'd like more information on that, you can also follow this link um, that you'll post. Perfect. Perfect day. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you're enjoying these episodes, please consider leaving me a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps others to find the show. To learn more about my live classes, virtual meditation retreats, my meditation app Shoreline, or to make a donation to the show, please visit MerylArnett.com. Thanks again. I'll see you next week.